Hello, I'm Nicole Abadie and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Welcome to today's episode of Books, Books, Books. Today, I'll be interviewing an Australian writer, Mirandi Riwo, about her new book, Stone Sky Gold Mountain. Mirandi is a Brisbane-based writer who has a PhD in creative writing and literary studies. Her novella, The Fish Girl, was shortlisted for the Stella Prize in 2018, with the judges describing her as a powerful emerging voice in Australian fiction. Stone Sky Gold Mountain is her second novel, and it's published by University of Queensland Press. Mirandi has wanted to be a writer since she was nine or ten and started to write her own Nancy Drew type novels. Mirandi, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Oh, thank you for having me. Wonderful to have you here. What I'd like to start with is just if you could tell us a little bit what the book's about and then I'll ask you to read a short extract from it for our listeners. Okay. So um, my book is set in North Queensland during the Gold Rush period in 1877 and it's about... two siblings who come from China to dig for gold, Lai Ye and his sister Ying, who's disguised as a, as a boy to um, dig for gold with him. Um, and um, in their time in, on the Palmer River or in Maytown, they meet um, a European-Australian girl, Miriam, um, who works for the local sex worker. So um, it's a story about their time in the gold rush and I guess what it was like being on the periphery of, of society, um, exiled from some parts of society and um, I guess, you know, and looking at things like racism in the, at the time. Right. Would you like to read an extract for us now, please? Sure, I can. So this is from um, the first section. And it's um, about Laya and Ying. And Ying is having her hair cut because what they used to do is they would, um, they had those plaits down the back, but the top of their head would be shaved. So she, her brother's shaving her hair for her in this um, section. And that's how men wore their hair, right? That's how, sorry, that's how men wore their hair. Yes, and women just um, had a had more. I think they didn't even shave at all. So this is what she's doing to disguise herself as a, as a boy. Lowering herself onto the stool in front of her brother, she lifts the straw hat from her head. She holds her plait in her right hand and leads, leans her head back towards him. The metal of the razor scrapes across her scalp as warm as blood. When Lai Ye is finished, Ying runs her hand over the bald front half of her head. Her fingertips search out the line that divides the skin of her scalp from where her cue begins. She turns to glare at Lai Ye. You always take too much off. It looks ugly. She unravels the plait so she can free the shaved hair that hangs loose from her scalp. Her brother shrugs. I have to make it straight. Sometimes I shave too closely in one place and then I have to straighten up the rest. And anyway, you're supposed to look like an ugly boy. You're not a pretty girl here, Ying. She breathes in, feeling the band tight about her chest. Her breasts are no bigger than shrimp dumplings, but still she has to hide them. She's seen the look in the eyes of some of the men when they catch sight of the white women in town. She doesn't want to see that look directed at her. Not here. Not where lust will be mixed with fury at her trickery. A grin lifts Laya's lips. Not that you're ever a pretty girl, Ying, even in China. 
His words sting, yet she's pleased to see that smile. She can't remember the last time he looked happy. He's only 19 years old, but there are creases in his forehead that weren't there before they came to this place. And the skin under his eyes is pale, baggy. The bruise on his cheek has faded a little, is no longer the livid purple of an eggplant, and the cut above his lip has nearly healed and looks not like nothing more than one of the many wrinkles or creases scored into his skin by this land's cruel sun. They hadn't been quick enough the last time a rowdy bunch of white fellows descended upon them, didn't hear the drunken cries of roll up, roll up in time to save their two pickaxes, the sturdy metal pan they'd traded Ying's winter coat for, and the last of the rice they'd hidden deep in the soil. One man, as gingery as a fox with thick shaggy eyebrows, swung the spade against Laio's head and called out something in his devil tongue before chasing after the others. Their camp, nearly 60 Chinese men, had scattered in all directions like a swarm of locusts shaken violently from a tree. Ying is learning their white language swiftly, but not quickly enough to catch words shouted in anger, in threat. Thank you, Mirandi. So your book is set in 1877 in Maytown in far north Queensland, as you mentioned, and that was the main township of the Palmer River goldfields. How did you set about researching what the goldfields were like in the 1870s? Well, originally, um, I guess originally I read about the Chinese who came here to dig for gold, and um, I think they dug for gold in a different way to the European diggers. Um, even their, their sort of the shafts they dug were, I think, the, um, the European diggers um, dug squares and the Chinese um, made round holes because they didn't like the corners because I think because evil spirits or something could hide in the, the corners. Um, so I sort of started there with just that sort of reading research. But I did um, go to Melbourne to look at their um, uh, museums and Bendigo and Ballarat sort of areas to see that. And I think I, I'm pretty sure it was outside Bendigo. There's a um, there's also uh, it's like a place you can visit to, to try your hand at um, gold digging, uh, a touristy thing. Um, and then by the time I decided maybe Queensland would be the best place for me to set the novel, um, being a Queenslander, being from Brisbane, but I've also lived in Cairns, um, I read about all the different areas in Queensland that had, you know, gold digging. And I guess Cooktown... Cooktown probably had the biggest number of Chinese and it has just superb museums about the, the gold rush. So that, that makes it very easy for you. And also then um, I went, we went out to and camped there the night um, in Maytown on the Palmer River. So I guess all of it fed into, and I even YouTube, you know, looked up YouTube for how um, people search for gold now, you know, like, um, because, you know, there's still adventurers out there, you know, looking in that area for gold. So, um, yeah, I guess I encompassed it all, trying to find out how to write about it. Mirandi, one of the things that you discovered in your research was that at that time there were around four times more Chinese people than there were white Australians uh, who were digging for gold in that area. Was that something that came as a surprise to you? And what did you learn about what life was like on the gold fields for Chinese people? Um, it was a surprise 
to me. And um, I'm still amazed by it that there were just so many Chinese there. And that actually, you know, like you said, they outnumbered the the sort of Australians, the white Australians who are up there. So that's that's quite almost shocking, actually. Um, I think, you know, I've read a couple of journals or memoirs by people, um, men who came out from China to dig for gold. And, and from what I can gather, it was very difficult lifestyle. Um, a lot of, well, of course, a lot of men lost their lives. Um, many men never recouped their, you know, riches um, or their, I guess, what they, they paid out to get here. To dig for gold. How did the Australians treat them? Oh, um, look, I think even as far back as 15 years before that with um, how they were treated in Victoria, I know um, the uh, Victorian government had to set up a system of protection against um, racist attacks um, against the Chinese diggers there. Um, North Queensland, apparently um, the sort of racist attacks like those roll-up sort of attacks uh were less they or maybe they just weren't reported or maybe it was just purely because there were just many more Chinese than than the white uh, settlers there um so that could account for it but apparently um and I think maybe that does account for it a lot you know um because the, there were so many Chinese they were having their own little wars between their different tongs and factions you know um but nevertheless, there was um, still a lot of racism. And I think the racism then was, like, we would look at it now and be shocked by it, like even the language they used. But I think then it was just entrenched in how they did think about, you know, the Chinese. That we were supposed to, Australia and China were so supposed to reciprocate, you know, like they were supposed to treat each other, you know, like uh, when their people you know, when Australians or British subjects, say, they would have been, were in China, they're supposed to be treated a certain way and Chinese subjects when they were in any of the sort of British areas were to be treated well and certainly not taxed or, or you know, made to pay those licences like they were in Australia. So, and also the Chinese were taxed and had to pay these licences, whereas other Europeans, say, the Swedish or Germans or whoever came in, they didn't have to, or the Irish or Scottish. So that was one thing I... That's one reason in the book I kept accents. Usually I wouldn't carry on with Scottish or Irish accents, except I did just to show that um, some of, well, many of the people there were as, as foreign to Australia, obviously everybody apart from the Aboriginal people at the time, but, but um, even um, compared to the settlers who'd only been here a few generations, many of the Europeans were very new to the country as well, you know, but they didn't have the same discrimination aimed at them as the Chinese did. As you've mentioned, there are really four lead characters in the book. There's the brother and sister. We'll come to talk, talk about all of them in a little more detail later on. But as you've mentioned, you also write about two single European women who live in Maytown, Sophie and Miriam. What was life like for single women in the gold towns? I read about a character named Sophie. So actually, I think originally I was going to have her be more of a main character, but then it became Miriam. Um, I think Maytown itself, you know, in the end it did have, over its glory years, let's say five, ten years, I mean it had uh, a bank and the post office and I think eventually a school, you know, that sort of thing. You have Eurasian heritage. Your father is Indonesian Chinese. 
Um, I know in The Fish Girl you wrote about a young Indonesian woman and here you're writing about the experience of a Chinese brother and sister in the goldfields in the 1870s. I've wondered to what extent does your own heritage influence your writing and your choice of subject matter? I think now, I think it always has actually, um, maybe not in my short fiction, um, but um, although I always write about what might be, say, preoccupying me um, or what themes are of interest to me, which would be cultural or feminist. So usually they're, you know, that's sort of the, the um, tunnel I'll go down when I'm writing or researching a book. Um, being Eurasian, I think, I think actually, yes. So I, I definitely write about those themes because I am Eurasian myself. Um, I guess it helps me think about things. Um, and I, I just enjoy portraying, um, things, you know, especially historical things like through a different lens, maybe, you know, that, um, so I like to take, so like even in this novel, so I've taken some primary sources written by um, white men and um, either, or like what I did with Fish Girl, and then I write it from another sort of cultural and gendered sort of framework or so viewpoint. Yeah. Let's talk now a little bit about the book. Let's start, if you could tell us a bit about this brother and sister, Lai Yu and Ying. Why are they here? What what brought them to the Australian goldfields? What happened to them that drove them all that distance from China to Australia to try to make their fortune? Okay, so in their case, um, their fathers lost everything um, to opium and gambling. So the the children have been, well, sold into slavery of some sort. We're not sure. And I did get that from a reference it was actually, I think, an English person was writing a letter or maybe it was in the newspaper and it was in um, Eric Roll's book called Sojourners. Um, and it was, um, a, I think, a British man talking about how sad it was when he saw, you know, this woman, this widow on the side of the street, in China, sorry, with um, her children and a sign because she she had to sell her children. Um so these two have come to Australia because they want to raise enough money quickly to go back to yeah. be able to release their brother and sister. Yeah, and I, I, that's what they're hoping. Let, let's talk now a bit about each of the major characters. So let's start with Lai Yu. He's 19. He's the oldest brother in the family. Mm. What is he like? What sort of a person is he? I think he feels his responsibility as the eldest son um, really strongly um he he very much resents the uh responsibilities that um his father's left him with and that um you know saving his siblings and the farm and his mom all really rests on him on his shoulders so he he feels that acutely and probably um not in a strong way <laughs> like I don't you know and and plus that I think and I think it's true for some people I think he has a, a run of bad luck you know but he's not as resilient as Ying he he um feels things he's very much um 
a person who thinks the world is against him as well, I think, yeah. And when he left China, he had been recently betrothed to be married to a, a young woman called Shan, but she died tragically. How does Lai Yu feel about his family and his country that he's left behind? Does he miss well, he, them? Yes. He, now, he misses them a lot, as resentful as he is. Um, and I think this country just really, um, I think he lives in a lot of fear here and just wants to get back, um, unfortunately. Yeah. And once he gets to Maytown, he initially finds it hard to find work, but then he ends up getting a job with some white um, men who are need to go on a long journey and they take him with them as, as his, their carrier and their cook. How do they treat him? At the very least offhand, you know, like he's, he's maybe not one of their, um, one of them, um, except that obviously later in um, their journey to the, to the, the sheep farm that they're heading towards, um, obviously by then it's clear that when they have to take sides, Laiyu's on their side or they're on Laiyu's side, yeah. Let's talk now about Laiyu's sister, Ying, who's 17. She gets a job when she gets to Maytown in a shop owned by a, a Chinese man. What's she like, Mirandi? What sort of person is she? So Ying is um, much more resilient than Laiyu and she embraces being here. She... So whereas Laya finds everything quite um, scary, like even the landscape and how different everything is, uh, Ying um, is fascinated by it all. I wanted her to be, you know, that open-minded character who who possibly would even stay. And also because she's dressing up as a boy, she sees that she's, she's got some freedom. So she's got some freedoms because she's in Australia. She's got some freedoms because she's a boy. Very few women brought to Australia at that stage by the Chinese probably you know and they even say you know I have read references that the Chinese were like because it is so violent here that you know from just the violence from the I guess the landscape and the um you know the racism and everything that you know why would they bring women here anyway um but it wasn't it was frowned upon from our side and their side um but she and plus it on a gold field like it was mostly men and quite rough there's there's the only way she could have stayed with her brother was to dress up as a boy to come as a boy randy there's one scene in the novel where she's she's working with jimmy in his shop and she witnesses a really ugly incident of racist abuse by some of the white australians how does that make her feel how does she respond to that she's fearful and obviously um careful but also irritated I think people don't realize um you know I think when you're at the other end of a racist attack you you might think the person is going to be scared or angry about it but actually a lot of the time you just it's just irritating too you know like so I wanted to show this sort of mild irritation she had with it because and also that she was kind of used to it let's talk now about Miriam so she is born in Queanbeyan, which is in southeast New South Wales, and she somehow found herself to far north Queensland, a long, long way from home. She's now working in Maytown as a servant to Sophie, who, as you've said, is a, a sex worker in the town. What's Miriam like, and is she happy with her life? So Miriam's not happy with her life. She um, She's there because she's you know, made a terrible sort of social 
um, mistake and um, has been shunned from her family. And, and somehow or other, she's found herself all the way up north working for Sophie. Um, and I imagine she's gone from job to job that's kind of led her in desperate, you know, in desperate sort of need to that sort of job. I wanted to show that, um, you know, that journey from um, seeing the Chinese, I guess, as the other and um, changing maybe how she feels about the Chinese through knowing an individual. And the way that, you know, that happens is that she she meets and becomes friendly with Ying. How do they meet? Mm. Tell us about that first encounter. So, well, the first encounter, so Ying's probably seen her around, but to Miriam, Ying's just one of many. Um, and then um, after the dance, she's upset and she, Miriam, falls over and loses her glasses and that's when um, Ying helps her. And then we find out in the next scene, though, that she still wasn't nice about it. Miriam wasn't nice about it, and she <laughs> which lashed, I think. She lashes out at him when he comes yeah, to yeah, help yeah. her to do something yeah, kind. Yeah, yeah. Her first in- instinct yeah, is to lash out at him. Yeah, but I think people are like that. I think people probably are like that. So, um, And then over time they become friendlier, probably because Ying's a bit determined to be friends with her. There's something about her that fascinates Ying. And when they become friendly, they have to meet somewhere secret they can't be seen publicly why is that oh well that's mostly because Miriam doesn't want to be seen with a Chinese person and that spot um actually when I was in um Maytown and we were just looking around and by the water I found like a little spot like that uh, uh, you know amongst the trees but it was it was this little grove and it was just beautiful and I was like this is where they meet you know like so it was really good it was, yeah, beautiful area. You mentioned, I think, earlier something about her being a social outcast or I, I might be putting words in your mouth. Miriam, yep, yep. Yeah, and the reason for that is because she works for Sophie, the That's right. sex worker. There's a, a very painful, really early indication of this. We see a couple of scenes in the novel where we see her being socially snubbed and treated as an outsider one instance early in the novel is when she tries to buy sweets from the local store, from mm. Mrs Cowper's mm. store. What happens? So she goes in, usually she shops at Jimmy's because she has been snubbed at this shop before, but she's wondering if she was just imagining it. So she's going back, it's owned by, it's so it's one of the few shops that's not owned by the Chinese. Um, and she just wants some of those boiled lollies. That's all she wants, um, bullseye lolly. And um, she's tried to make them before. She can't make them, so she she goes into the shop. But um, she's snubbed again. Mrs Cowper won't have a bar of her, and the poor thing has to back out of the out of the shop without her lollies. But like she points out, I mean, you know, these things are hierarchies. Um, probably, you know, because there is the other um, madam in town who's sort of got a, a better maybe a, a better establishment but also maybe some bounces um and um so Miriam knows that those girls are welcome to shop there so I think it's also a hierarchy thing like you know some people just spot other people's weaknesses and and um for some reason uh, Miriam is on her on her um target Miriam strikes me as a particularly sad character. 
over and over again, we get a sense of how lonely she is. Uh, and there's something I think interesting in her relationship with Sophie. We'll come to Sophie next, but she seems to have a sort of mixed feelings about Sophie. He's very beautiful, has lots of men coming to visit her. Sometimes she even feels jealous of Sophie. What's that about? Um, well, I think that the jealousy is just, uh, you know, I, I think, in a, you know, just of, of Sophie's prettiness. But on the other hand, I think also she realises that it would be a bit of a um, burden to be as, as pretty as Sophie as well, you know. I think um, how she reacts to Sophie has to do with maybe she probably doesn't, doesn't know where she stands. So maybe socially in, an, in other circumstances she'd be, I guess, better or higher than Sophie, but maybe not because then, you know, she's not sure what Sophie's background is either, you know, um, which is indicative of those times, I guess, when it really mattered, like where you came from and that, and that women could just um, stoop so low, like not stoop so low, like fall so low just through um, like either losing your husband or, you know, accidentally becoming pregnant or, you know, all these things. Let's talk about Sophie now. And I, we very early on the piece get the picture that she's very beautiful. And there's a, a great description early on that she often wanders around the house naked. So we start <laughs> to form a particular view of Sophie. She seems to be quite yeah. a bold, sort of slightly yeah. saucy, slightly audacious, yeah. feisty yeah. woman. Is that right? Yeah, I wanted her to be a bit kind of, what about feisty? I wanted her to be a bit... Um, carefree I guess you know one of those people who's very comfortable in their skin um and yeah not as I guess not as careful as of what others are thinking of them um yeah so I wanted her to not be hard I don't want her to be hard she's still a um she's vulnerable you know, yeah she's still vulnerable but not um not um but not she doesn't sort of yeah care what others think of her either. Randy one of the very strongest themes of the book obviously is this racism and we see it over and over again we see right at the beginning of the book Lai Yu the passage that you read from um, he and, and people he's with have been beaten up by the white men Jimmy whose store that um, Ying works in has go back chink written on his door one of Sophie's customers hates the fact that she sees Chinese men as well as European men. We see the terrible scene in the Jimmy's shop. What did you learn in your research about racism in the gold fields? What did it tell you? Oh, uh, I think what I learned was that in in some ways it was just seen as normal. Like the language they use, like Chinaman or Chinky or, you know, that sort of thing, they just used as like sort of normal words like nowadays we'd go oh my god that is so racist i want to ask you now about the relations between the the australian men the european men and the uh, local indigenous people what were those relations like as depicted in the book well depicted in my book i so i had to put a lot of thought into this so when i eventually decided to write on north queensland and did the research i realized um 
I couldn't write the novel and not consider what happened to the, well, they were the Western Yalanji people. So the first thing I did actually was I um, consulted with the um, Western Yalanji people to ask about if I could write about how fearful the Chinese were of um, the Aboriginal people, but also about the violence against them. And so what I've done is, and it's not my story to tell as such what happened to them, and I certainly wasn't going to appropriate any voices. So all I could do was show what happened through the eyes of like what my characters might have seen, you know. So that's why I have Clem. So Clem, when they see something at the beginning and Clem says that line, that came from, a, um, I think, a primary source I read where a digger's describing what he sees on... Um, at a riverbed like he just you know he says there's obviously been blah 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 you know and it's about a massacre um so what I've done is like I was saying before is I take that primary source and I I sort of skew it so that it's going through the Chinese eyes of seeing it Mm. um so I haven't like made it up as such um and then I also did want to show like the white Australians also the Chinese that they were all complicit the Chinese were no less complicit in displacing and the violence against those you know the local Aboriginal people so that was very important to me too I didn't want to write you know another sort of saviour book or anything like that I wanted it to be quite true to the probable attitudes at the time. It seems each of these four characters are really outsiders they're each of them are very lonely really and each of them one way or another is marginalised as well. So Lai Yu mm. and Ying are marginalised because of their race. Sophie and Miriam are marginalised by their gender. And I know that in The Fish Girl, you also wrote about a character who was marginalised. What is it that attracts you to the stories of people like that who are the outsiders, if you like, the, on the fringes of society? I think um, why I write about marginalised characters is well probably because I write about um people who are living amongst another dominant culture you know like Asians in a sort of white society um and I like to write about sort of feminist themes so about women and women historically were often marginalized so um I'd say that's that's probably for me, why it's, it's quite obvious to write about um, marginalised characters. Mirandi, you write about a whole lot of issues in this context of 19th century Australia, but it, it seems pretty apparent that most of them are still issues today. You write about racism, colonialism, violence of men towards women, social ostracism of outsiders, the terrible treatment by white Australians of Indigenous people. Mm. Is one of the points that you want to make that we haven't really come all that far in relation to most of those issues? Of course, in many ways, we've come a long way. I do, I do think it's ironic sometimes to write back to these things that are still happening. I, I think actually things obviously have improved, but, but boy, I think there's some people who wish it hadn't, you know, I, that would like it to still be like that. And um, I think maybe lately, especially to do with racism, Things and this is not just because we're in this pandemic period, but even just in the last few years, I think racism has become worse. I think there's certain leaders in the world who have legitimised um, 
some forms of racism um, to the point that I would say my son probably witnesses more sort of racist attitudes than I even did in the 80s, you know. It's sort of um, a bit shocking and, like I was saying before, irritating, <laughs> not just irritating. So, so I think some things just still do need to change more. Mirandi, thank you so very much for joining me today on Books, Books, Books. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Congratulations on your novel. It's wonderful. I wish you the very best of luck in promoting it in these very difficult circumstances. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbotty.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbotty, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. Since it's a new podcast, it would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.